Hey folks, it's week two in the trial of Derek Chauvin, the former police officer charged with killing George Floyd. The prosecutors are presenting their case by calling witnesses, including bystanders to the incident and medical personnel, and by showing many videos. In a rare move, Minneapolis Police Department officers are testifying against Chauvin, including the police chief and the most senior officer in the department. Meanwhile, the Department of Justice is reportedly investigating Florida Congressman Matt Gates for allegedly sex trafficking a minor, violating campaign finance rules, and more. Gates denies any wrongdoing and claims the investigation is part of an extortion scheme against him. Ann Milgram and I discuss all this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership free for two weeks. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. College students with a valid.edu email can head to cafe.com slash student and sign up at a lower rate. Again, that's cafe.com slash student. We look forward to having you as a part of the insider community. You know, last week was a lot about the bystanders, interesting choices we've discussed. So far this week, and recording this mid-morning on Tuesday, April 6th, the one-two punch of the bystanders followed by multiple police witnesses, I don't want to overstate it, but it's very, very strong. So you have up to and including the police chief, who's been a terrific witness, I, I'm, I'm going to skewer his name, I'm sure, but Madaria Arredondo, who has been a police officer, I think, since 1989, so his whole life in the police department there in Minneapolis, first African-American police chief there. He's the one responsible for firing Derek Chauvin. And he said in no uncertain terms that what Derek Chauvin did was wrong, was outside of the training, was not what he was supposed to do. And so it'd be one thing if you had the police saying it and the witnesses who were bystanders said something quite different, but they completely reinforce each other. So you're getting lay witness testimony that they thought the bad things were happening. And then you get not only they're not just police experts on on training. They're the actual supervisors of Derek Chauvin himself. And I have not personally researched it. And you may have some experience with this because you've dealt with a lot of police departments. It marks one of the first times ever in a case like this where someone has been killed at the hands of a police officer that that police officer's own chief testifies for the prosecution. The only other instance that I've seen documented is a prior case in Minneapolis itself where the same police chief testified against an officer who was involved in an excessive use of force case. Have you ever seen a, a police chief testify this way? I have it. And usually in a police case, you would generally see a supervisor, the, the person who was the supervisor at the time, and then you'd see a training officer. And all the police departments, major police departments, have training officers, and they're responsible for making sure the officers get use of force training, de-escalation training, whatever whatever it is in the specific police department. And that, the training officer is usually called, as, as has been the case here, we should note that one of the officers that was called had been in charge of training. And so she testified, I think, yesterday, you know, here's all the training that Derek Chauvin received. Here's what he would have been trained in. Um, here's the sort of process and protocols that police officers follow. And and the police chief did some of this too. There was a very senior police lieutenant who I think is the person with the most time on the force who's also testified. And so 
what is normal is to have a training officer say, the officer received this training and here's the policies of the police department and here's what you're supposed to do. This has gone in a completely different direction, far, far, far beyond, I think, what you would usually see. And the judge has actually held back the prosecution a little bit on this and only allowing them to have, I don't know, I think it's four police witnesses. Because they think the prosecutors are going overboard on it, right? Right. But in a normal police case, you'd like, prosecutors probably would struggle to have one or two officers who would testify under subpoena and sort of, you know, not be so happy often, depends on the case, obviously, but, you know, would do it because it was their job. And here it feels completely different. Like, you know, the officers feel compelled to take the stand and say, this was wrong. It's not consistent with our training. And one of the powerful moments I thought was the moment where they showed how, and the police chief talked a lot about this, they showed how members of the police force are supposed to interact with the public. And it really is all about treating the public with dignity and respect and telling them your name, introducing yourself. Like, it's really just so wildly at odds with the way this interaction went down, really from start to finish. And 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 I want to talk about the beginning of this in a second, but it wasn't just that the officers who testified have said, this is not consistent with our training. You can't do a neck hold like that. This isn't, you know, they should have stopped, right? Like they, you know, they should have rendered aid. I mean, there's just the rendering aid piece and assisting George Floyd, I also think is very powerful and, and will be a major part of the prosecutor's summation, which is like, how do you know that this is what Derek Chauvin intended to do and was doing? the fact that he didn't render aid consistent with his training will be a piece of it. There are multiple things, right? It's not just that the prosecution is resting on one mistake made by Derek Chauvin. There are a whole bunch, beginning with disproportionate response to the nature of the crime, which was, or alleged crime. It's not even clear in this testimony to indicate that George Floyd did not know he was passing a, you know, a potentially counterfeit $20 bill. So there's that in the first place. Why you need to engage in that kind of force just to begin with, then the illegal maneuver of putting the knee in the back of the neck, then doing it for as long as he did, then not rendering aid, not dealing with the public correctly. So it's it's failure after failure after failure that common sense tells you and the bystanders told you seem to be wrong and offensive and excessive. And then his supervisors tell you the same thing. You know, sometimes in cases like this, you have some contradictory testimony and I haven't seen any here. I mean, the most you have and what the defense will probably rely on is what Derek Chauvin says. Now, I, I, I agree with you, as we discussed last week, that he will likely not take the stand. But there is, are some statements of Derek Chauvin that will be in the record, including an exchange he had with a member of the public when George Floyd was being taken away in an ambulance. And he said, quote, to somebody who was disagreeing with his conduct, he said, quote, that's one person's opinion. But, but, no, no, I've got to get him. I've got to get him. We've got to control this, got to control this guy because he's a sizable guy. Yeah, and I've got to, I've got to get, like, get in the car. It looks like he's probably on something. So this argument, which I think ultimately fails, and I know the listener asks, you know, what arguments of the defense are you, are you most worried about? I can't remember the phraseology. I wouldn't be worried about any defense arguments, really. But there are some that they're going to poke at and try to, you know, build up into a larger argument. And one is this. Look, in that moment, this is a big guy. And I th- as I say it out loud, given all the other evidence, I think it fails on its face and won't be compelling to the jury. But all they need is one juror to believe this. That, look, he was a bit out of control. It is confirmed later that he has meth and fentanyl in his bloodstream. 
Uh, he wasn't being cooperative. And one police officer made a judgment call to subdue him. And was it too long? I don't know. But in the moment, he felt that it was necessary for safety. Now, that seems to be the best they can do. Do you think they're going to argue that Chauvin's knee was on the back of the, on the back or shoulder? The defense yeah. has already made suggestions to that effect, which is, by the way, a recognition that the knee on the neck is very, very, very bad for them. Right. I agree. It's an interesting strategy to think about the defense standing up because what I think, if you play that out a little, I think they have to say it's either he had his knee on his on the shoulder or the back and and you misunderstand all you bystanders and everyone watching the video, you're misunderstanding what you're seeing, which is a, a pretty tough defense to make, I think. Or it's a, he thought he had his knee on the shoulder or the back. It was a mistake. I, and I don't think they're going to make the mistake defense, but I, I, I sort of, you know, I was thinking what other options are really available to them. It's either what you're seeing isn't correct. Like, you know, your eyes are deceiving you. No, well, the argument I think they're going to make and we can get to it. I think all this stuff about Chauvin's intent and where his knee was and all of that. By the way, there's other evidence that the knee was on the neck. You had a contemporaneous witness, Charles McMillan, who's I think the guy who broke down in, in sobs just watching some of this video. You can hear him on the video telling the police, quote, get your knee off his neck. So he's there as a particular angle. There's no, he doesn't have a body cam. He's just a bystander. So there's a lot of evidence that the knee was in the neck. I think where the defense is going to have to you know, pour all of its energy is on causation. And to make the point over and over again, that I think that the prosecution is doing a good job of rebutting, but it's confusing. Medicine is confusing. Cause of death is confusing to people. And they're hoping for that confusion. And it has to be that it was a combination of the drugs, it was a drug overdose, or it was a cardiac issue. And the terminology gets kind of perplexing here. That's their argument. Look, Derek Chauvin did what he did. You can argue that it was too much or not, we make, you know, we stand by the position that it was a volatile situation. He stayed within his training. But at the end of the day, the argument would go, you cannot convict our client, Derek Chauvin, because he's not the reason George Floyd is dead. And they'll point to, and we haven't heard all the testimony yet, and presumably they'll put on some case of their own with their own experts to confuse the matter. But I think their best hope is to, is to convince one or more jurors who are confused about cause of death, uh, a juror or two who, who are reluctant to convict a police officer, and you have that in a lot of places. And I think that's their best shot, and I think it's a, it's a narrow shot, and I don't think it will work. I'm, I'm becoming more optimistic. It's very early still. I'm pretty optimistic that they have a powerful case and there will be a conviction. But what do you think about that strategy as a defense? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think as we start to pick through the potential defenses, I think that's their strongest argument. What is also interesting is that it is the one for which they will have the medical examiners. We have not seen the dueling experts testify yet. And so I, I think a lot about the strength of that defense will really depend on um, the medical examiners. Now, that being said, I think that the prosecutor has already taken steps and has already, you know, talked to the EMT, the the individual who arrived and tried to tried to resuscitate George Floyd and and was not able. Talked to him about what asphyxiation means, right? So, it, you know, and and I thought the government, I thought the prosecutors did a really effective job with him and basically saying like it, it wasn't about a heart attack; it was that he'd stopped breathing. And so, again, trying to simplify this for the jury. 
And I think that the defense will want it to be complicated and they will want to argue it could have been one of these other things that caused his death, right? His death was caused by these other things. And if you can't be sure, as the argument goes, you can't convict someone of second degree, third degree murder. Yeah, their their best point on this, and this was previewed in the prosecution's defense, right? Because they, I think, appreciated this was a weakness. And now you've seen it play out a little bit. It's not just that he had some drugs in his system. It's not just that he had taken some stuff. But I think both sides understand, and the prosecution concedes, it was a pretty significant quantity. And the prosecution had to preview to the jury, look, if you're a big guy and you've been taking a certain kind of narcotic for a while, you develop some tolerance of it. And so what might kill a petite first-time user is not going to be significant, for someone like George Floyd. But that's, you know, that's a bit of a wrinkle and a hiccup. And George Floyd's, we haven't mentioned her yet, I don't think, George Floyd's girlfriend testified about their addiction and about their struggles and about an overdose that George Floyd had. All of that seems very reasonable when it's being discussed, you know, in testimony that unfolds at the trial. But the defense is going to, you know, relitigate that as powerfully as they can in the summation and say, this was a man who had a drug problem, sure, but he was capable of having an overdose. You heard about the overdose that his own girlfriend testified to. He had X quantity of narcotics in his system. That's proven. That's not disputed by the prosecution at all. You heard experts testify that this quantity of drug can cause an overdose, can cause the heart to stop, can cause death. There's a reasonable doubt here. And by the way, the other thing people need to remember is the defense doesn't have to prove that he died from an opioid overdose or from from cardiac arrest. They have to show a reasonable doubt as to causation. And and they're going to, you know, dwell on the standard and say, look, you heard all these people testify. Here's what the girlfriend said. Here's what the facts are with respect to, to drugs in the bloodstream. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a reasonable doubt as to the causation of George Floyd's death based on all of this stuff. That's their best shot to get people to understand the reasonable doubt standard and to muck it up with all this confusing stuff. It's not great that the prosecution has to make the argument about drug tolerance, right? No, right. I mean, I I think the prosecution has done the absolute right thing to just be upfront about all of this because these are the facts. And and to call his girlfriend and to have her talk about his struggles with addiction and her struggles with addiction, I think is is important. Um, And again, I think with with a jury, you want to be upfront and it's part of the toxicology report. It's part of the narrative here. Um, And so I don't I don't think there is a choice. And now it's up to the government really to argue again, and go back to their very basic common sense, you know, you're going to see it with your own eyes. This was a murder. You're going to see what happened and to sort of push that. But I do agree that is the defense's best argument is going to be that. It is also, though, I still think it is it is problematic because you are attacking the victim. You are attacking George Floyd. And no matter how they no matter how they do it and how they couch it, at the end of the day, I think the jur- my experience with, with juries is that they are very wise and they overwhelmingly see they see it all. And I think they will see that. And so I think that's a that's a real um, question of how that 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 plays. And I, I my instinct is the same as yours. I think the case is going in very well. I mean it's going in better than I, mean, I thought it would be a strong case, but I will say from from watching for a week and a day or two, it's stronger than I expected. 
I think it's very, very compelling. I, I haven't really seen a misstep. I don't see a lot of contradictory evidence. You know, when I was making the point about causation, you know, I'm trying to make the best argument possible for the defense. Yes. Oh, I agree. I want to read to you that this is from a jury instruction that was used in Minnesota in the trial of um, Officer Mohammed Noor, and that was the other police misconduct case that the chief of police had testified in. But I, I read it just for our listeners to understand what reasonable doubt is. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership free for two weeks. Interested students with a valid.edu email can head to cafe.com slash student. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work.